Good morning, everybody. I'm Sergeant Carla Burr. Uh, this is our Tuesday podcast. I have with me, of course, Corporal Jeb Hilton. And our special guest today is retired Lieutenant Gary Troop. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so just, I mean, I worked with you for a long time and um, we've been dying to have you on here. So tell us a little bit about your career and, and uh, what you're doing for us now again. Okay. Um, I started with the Amarillo Police Department in uh, October of 1980. Um, before that, I'd been a military policeman uh, with the U.S. Army. But uh, with the Amarillo Police Department, I started here, um, went through the academy, uh, went to midnights from 1980, 1986. Uh, during that six years, I promoted to both corporal and sergeant. Uh, when I promoted to sergeant, Chief Neal uh, transferred me to day shift, which was totally alien to me. Because I hadn't been out in the light of this, the light of Amarillo in six years. Uh, I was a day shift sergeant for about three years. Then I went to evenings. I got injured. Uh, then I went to detectives and worked in the crimes against persons. I specialized in, in uh, aggravated assaults, people getting shot or stabbed. Then I went back to the field as a midnight sergeant. Um, and then came back to being a day shift sergeant again and uh, been promoted to being a lieutenant, which, okay. Um, <laughs> what, year was, uh, what year was that? Uh, 1998, I promoted lieutenant. Um, then Chief Neal sent me to evening shift detectives, which at the time we didn't have, but as he told me when he promoted me, we do now, you're it, and I'll <laughs> give you people as you need, um, which was interesting. I had one from each squad. But at the time, shortly after I got promoted and sent to evenings, uh, city decided, or the police department decided, we were going to have a drive-by shooting team. And um, seeing as I was the evening shift lieutenant, I got voted most likely to have that job. <laughs> and, and, it, and, and I really appreciate it in the long run because it helped me get special crimes later. Um, I was assigned some de uh, juvenile detectives, some adult detectives that um, we got called out on at first a lot of the drive-by shootings and we were having a, a a huge amount of drive-by shootings at the time there wasn't a really a big crime like it is now where if you shoot a house or a car it's a felony then it was all based on if you shot a house how much damage did you do if you shot a car how much damage did you do until that law was changed which was in the time that i was there and that, thankfully cause yeah it, it, it was because we really you couldn't do a whole lot but we were having a lot of it and at the time we had the DA's offices involved uh, the, the courts and stuff and we were actually doing a lot of the stuff which was if you if you did it they'd set a high bond uh, you'd sit in jail for a while and you'd uh, be held responsible for those actions um, however it gave me the experience to being able to coordinate and work with a specialized group of people and uh, give me some experience working different jurors different deals and with different departments also uh, we we're really that that program became really successful we cleared up probably where we were doing when I we first went in there maybe 20 25 percent of the drive-by shootings we got up to probably 60 to 75 percent we were confiscating weapons. We were confiscating um, some property and vehicles. 
So it really became successful and it reduced the amount of drive-by shootings that occurred in Amarillo for a period of time. After that, uh, Chief Neal sent me to evening shift patrol where I was there for over evening shift for about three years, or uh, probably three to four years. And then I asked for, put in a transfer, and had to be interviewed, but I took over special crimes from Eddie Smith, and which was our homicide units, uh, investigate child deaths, um, officer-involved shootings, and I did that for the next nine years. And um, about 2011, 2012, I started to get burned out a little bit from the amount of calls and the amount of people that I'd seen that were deceased. I went back to patrol and ended out my career from about 2012 to 2018 on day shift as the uh, direct supervisor over day shift. I had motors. I had the pace unit at one time. So if you worked day shift at one point or another, you worked for, I was your lieutenant. So uh, in 2018, I retired. Um, I was gone for a little over a year and I was called by then Captain uh, Jimmy Johnson who offered me a job to do uh, background investigations for the upcoming academies and as I've told everybody else um, day shift TV sucked <laughs> and you could only do so many things around your house before you go crazy and I, I now uh, work part-time for the police department doing background investigations uh, just when an academy is fixing to start, so I have plenty of time to um, do some of my hobbies in between. Great. That's fantastic. And so, what are some of your hobbies? Uh, my biggest one and my biggest cost is scuba diving. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. I was over the underwater uh, search and rescue team for uh, 10 years here. Uh, I got certified as a scuba diver in 1994. I've been scuba diving ever since. I've got about 1,500 uh, open water dives, most of them in the ocean. There's a lot of them in some of the lakes in Amarillo. <laughs> I will tell you, don't swim or go underwater in any of the lakes in Amarillo because <laughs> they are nasty. Yes. Uh, they're they're not they're not were never made for for people to go into them really. So. Um, but that's my biggest hobby, uh, spending time with my dogs, walking. Uh, now it's working out. You know, I've, had, I've had some health issues over the last year and uh, getting somewhat back into shape and trying to take care of myself. Excellent. You know, Jeb is a diver as yes, well. Yes, I, you know I have. I, we've talked about that a few times. I've got, uh, a, got a whole nine dives under my belt, so I'm, <laughs> you know, they're adding up. It's one of those deals. It's almost like golf. I'm not sure which one is more expensive because you can spend – you know, you go get you go get fins, you get masks, you get BC, you whatever piece of equipment you think you got to have two or three pieces of it because then you got to have two or three computers. You can only use one, but you got to have more than one. You know, so just in case this one breaks. Absolutely. You know, uh, so yeah, uh, as my ex-wife would say, I have more toys than I know what to know what to do with. <laughs> Well, Jeb, uh, aren't you going to Mexico? Yeah, we've got got another trip planned in June, so I'm. I, I am love Cosmo. Let's I am trying. I've had one planned in February, and it because of COVID and because of some of the problems that were going on and some uh, weather at the time, they got canceled. I want to get down there. If I can get there, I'm going to go for about two weeks, and if I don't get to come back, 
darn, I'm not <laughs> going to come back. If they, if they delay my plane coming back, I'll be happy. I'll just keep diving. I'll just have someone send me some more money. A couple of times I've been to Cosmo, we've we always decide if we want to come back or not. It's really, really tough to, yeah. to make that decision. It's a beautiful place. I, I, I As far as enjoying, I've been all over the Caribbean. I enjoy the drift diving, and I just enjoy diving with some of the operators there that they'll let you dive as long as you want sure. to dive. And I can do an hour to hour 20 uh, on a regular deal. And so it's, it's just, I love the fact that you don't have phones. No one can talk to you, and all you're doing is communicating with critters underwater, and you get to see, get to see some of the things you haven't seen in a while, and sharks, or and rays, and probably things you've never seen before. Uh, you know, or maybe you with sixteen hundred well, dives. Well, no, you know, uh, every time you go diving, it, you can find something new, and even whether it's different critters, because you'll stuff different animals you've never seen or different configurations uh, maybe a shark will come up and buzz you or some you know turtles that are different bigger sizes whether they're greens leatherbacks so it, it's every time I go diving it's like I, I can I could probably lead a dive somewhere but I see something new every time because if you dive lower or higher you're gonna see something different so really it's cool. just it's just a blast it's such a just a good getaway like you said oh, yeah. no phone it, it's it's mostly peaceful you, you, yes. it's easy you don't have to put a whole lot of effort into it it's just no. and, it's and that's peaceful. that's the whole thing about it you know if you're putting a lot of effort into it then you're not enjoying it right. it's, it's supposed to be slow steady it's not a race because it's just you know if you if you only go a half mile you you probably had a great dive yeah well, and coming from what we do, I mean, a relaxing vacation can reset you for for a long time. So it's oh, yeah. nice to have when, that. When I was working, my wife, my wife would make me go about two or three times a year. And I'd be good for two yeah. or three months. I'd get back. I'd be dedicated. About three months, I need to hit it again. I <laughs> yeah. need to go somewhere. I need to get underwater. And it's been a while now, so I, I definitely need to get underwater. And you were you were in p positions at most of your career where you were supervising, so not only having to worry about you, but hundreds of other people under you, or whatever it was at the point yeah, you were supervising. Uh, you know, early on, uh, I would have told you I would have I would have never been capable of it. And I think Chief Neal trusted me in a lot of things that I didn't trust myself in, and he gave me the he gave me the encouragement to do some of the stuff I did. Um, you know, when you start out being a sergeant, Carly, you're a sergeant, you know, you're, you're kind of reluctant. You're trying to find your feeding. You're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. How are you supposed to supervise your people? How are you supposed to do the best you can? And I, I think that took me longer than most. I think my first few years as a sergeant, I was probably more of a micromanager, a tyrant. Do it my way or a highway. And I, and I kind of figured out as I progressed through my career that this job was being a supervisor was not about me. It was mm -hmm. about me taking care of my officers. And if I took care of them, did what was right for them, they would they would in, in make me look good and make my job as a supervisor easier. And I think at first I had it the wrong way. I thought they needed to take they needed to make me look good. It isn't about that. Mm -hmm. it, it was about them doing it. I think I hope that most of the guys that worked for me saw that, that I wanted to make their job better instead of making my job better. I was already in a position where I could, I wasn't as managed as they were. Mm -hmm. So if I could take a load off their back or take off something, 
that's what I needed to do. Uh, that was my job. So, um, you know, I, I think, like I say, a couple of the deals, I loved being a sergeant. And, and I, I think my highlight of my career, of course, was being in special crimes for that nine years. Um, I, followed a, I followed a great lieutenant before me, but I, the, everything that was set up in that unit, it was, it was, it was my pride and joy to get that job and to make sure that when I left it, I didn't make it any worse, and I hopefully I left it better than when I came in. Well, we look at look at homicide rates around the country and clearance rates on those. Our, ours here in Amarillo is ninety to one hundred percent on most years. I mean, it's, it's great. Over over the time I was there, we had a hundred homicides. I think it was um, that that I was. The unit was assigned and out of that we were at a 90 percent clearance rate on those homicides and, and i still remember the majority of the ones we didn't solve but out of one of the ones i was really proud of is that there was 10 that we cleared that were cold cases during that same period of time so theoretically i could almost say 100 percent, but no we had 90 but we we went back I had some fantastic investigators that were really interested in clearing cold cases and, and and did the extra work. And and that was satisfying to call those families back and go, hey, here's we did this, here's what we're prosecuting. And even if I, I always I always had my door open if some family wanted to talk to me about a cold case, even if we couldn't do anything, I'd happily talk to them. Yeah, because for those families that lose someone, I mean, then to not get the closure, to not have the person that's responsible for that, I mean, I can't even imagine what they go through. You know, you whatever your worst day, you know, when you lost, if you lost a parent or if you lost a grandparent, you know, even then you had an idea what it was, sure. what what happened. These people know what happened to their loved one. They don't know why. And who did it? Right. Um, and I've talked to ones who have been like their mother was killed, but when their mother was killed, they were an infant. And actually, they mom was killed, was found in the backyard. That child was an infant on the bed. Oh my and gosh! And did not has never known her mother was raised by her grandparents. Came talk to me because all she had was memories of what her parents or grandparents have told her about her mom. Um, I think I know who did the homicide, but never could solve, could not get, could not get the clearance of it. But you know, I'm looking at her, going, "You never got to meet your mom. All you've ever seen is pictures. You've never talked to her, mm-hmm. and I've never spoke to her." And now, you were I've there never, when this happened. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't there yeah. when I'm never. I wasn't in special crimes. This happened even before I oh, started. Wow. I happened before I started here. When she was, when this was, no, she, I was here just within the first few years, so I was just a patrol officer, and I never went on that call. And, but I, gosh, you know, I talked to her, and she'll probably still is wondering mm-hmm. why somebody killed her mother, and it, it was a fairly brutal murder, and it was why did somebody took her mother from her? Like I say, she was six months. Six, oh my gosh. Five, six months old when her mom was killed. She so was just a baby even, on the bed. Yeah, it doesn't even have memories of her mom's no. voice or anything. No, not, nothing at all. Oh, and, that's tragic. Uh, so, you know, some of the times you got to talk to those folks, sometimes you got to tell them the great news. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, if you could sit there and say, you know, working death investigations, and, and there's a morbid side to it, because people would say, you, you see all these dead folks. Well, yes, uh, but you get the satisfaction of solving what took place and telling them, here's what happened from start to finish. Right. Uh, a lot of the homicides does not take rocket science to solve. They're, they're pretty easy, open and shut. The ones that were the interesting were kind of the whodunits or the ones that weren't. And um, so, I, you know, I was always fascinated in the mechanism. You know, what, how, why? How did you, how did you kill somebody? How did they die? And I probably drove doctors and nurses and everything else crazy <laughs> trying to find out if this happens, why did this happen? You know, because sure. I wanted to be able to sit there and say, next time I go, I know how to say. If I'm, I'm going to go out and say one of you guys, when you call for maybe a, somebody from special crimes that this looks suspicious, go, yeah, it does. But this is what you're seeing, and this is not suspicious, because I drove people crazy trying to figure that out. Whether it be Eddie Smith, whether it be Ron Hudson, um, some of the guys that were in special crimes over the years, because if I went out on a death call, even as a sergeant, I'd be. I'd be coming back going, okay, I saw this, why did I see this? And I, I was, you know, I, I went from you being beat up to you being shot and stabbed to you being, your house being shot, and then somebody dying. So, mm -hmm. you know, I was like, okay, I progressed from about every phase of life to, well, not normal life, as most people say, but from <laughs> but getting beat up to life. death. Yeah, right. police life, from getting right. beat up to being dead. Right. Uh, Which I think is important for people to know. I mean, you get, we have police officers that are going call to call. They're answering the call, they're going to the next. But we have investigators that are, are doing this in-depth study of why things are happening, not only trying to get to the bottom, it's not a just another case for them. This is something that, that you, I, I, you know, was important to you. It was something yeah. you took time to learn. So. I think uh, what people, I think what people don't understand is, you know, they, they, the a patrol officer comes out and they takes a report. But they're, they're learning also at the same time. That patrol officer is, he starts learning to ask those questions. He starts learning to read people. He starts learning to say, kind of, what are you holding back? Why, what, you know, are you kind of reluctant here? What, what's bothering you, you know, when, when he's doing it? He's, he's starting to learn how to investigate things. And as he gets better at that, that's when he wants to move to being a detective or being an investigator in that unit. And, and I would say for the most part, most of the investigators and most of the detectives want to solve what they can solve. Sure. I, I think what some people don't understand is there's certain things that'll never be solved. Mm -hmm. um, you, for lack of a better word, you're not gonna be able to pull a rabbit out of your hat. Right. Because there's just not, if there's not any leads, whether you can, whether the victim can generate them or whether we can generate them, unless we can find property or something, it's virtually sometimes impossible. And sometimes that detective doesn't have like I did. I had an unlimited amount of time to work on homicide. They don't have that unlimited time. They're getting a lot of cases right. where I was getting a limited amount of cases. Sure. So, but I think like I say, for the most part, from what I've seen in the police department being an active member to being a retired member, most of the detectives wish and want to solve those cases. Sure. They're there because that's what they want. Sure. Now, you know, we all have our bad eggs that don't do what they need to do, but for the most part, that's a dedicated group of people. Definitely. I agree. Well, you know, we look at 
supervisors and, and you talk about people who've come and gone and I, I know names of some that, that I just know names and because the, the either good things or bad things they've done and I, I worked under you for a little while on day shift when you were lieutenant mm -hmm. I remember when I first started you were in special crimes and a couple of the scenes that I would be out on that you'd come out on you scared me to death number one. <laughs> but, you know I, 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 I unfortunately I, I, I think sometimes I had that persona <laughs> I really wasn't trying to but it was it was me and uh, you, you commanded a scene and, yeah, and you, uh, you demanded the right stuff be done I, so. I you know I was I was always told if, if you're gonna be responsible for something you take responsibility mm -hmm. for it. and, and and I, in like special crimes or even drive-bys, I wanted to make sure that when I presented or had a case that was presented, that the district attorney's office or the county attorney, whichever, I didn't give them a lot of loopholes. And I wanted to make sure that when I presented a case, even the defense attorneys, I would speak to the defense attorneys after trials and ask them, what did I do wrong? What did we do wrong? What could we have done better? Because I wanted to learn from their point of view when they're defending people. And I think for the most part, I, one of my rules was we're not withholding information from district attorneys or from the defense attorneys. Anything and everything we find out is going into this case file. Um, so that if there's a question going, uh, well, how come you didn't check out this alibi? We did. And, or if we couldn't, here's why we couldn't. Mm -hmm. So I'm not gonna get caught in there saying uh, we're hiding something. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to make sure that the crime scenes were handled correctly, both from the officer's point of view, but from my CSI and my investigator's point of view. Um, my job was to coordinate, uh, was to make sure that we did everything right and to make sure that everybody had the resources they needed to have to finish the deal, whether that meant I was waking up the chief at 2 in the morning or the DA <laughs> at 2 in the morning. That's, that was my job. Sure. And uh, many a time they were not pleased me waking them up. But, but you know, there, like I say, there's a lot of interesting stuff that I did in special crimes, a lot of interesting cases. I I happily talk about a few of those. Um, can't I'm not going to give any names or anything, sure, sure. but I'm sure some people would be able to pick pick up on some of the stuff. Sure. But uh, you know, I think over the time we, and one of the ones I won't kind of go into uh, is officer involved shootings, but uh, did I probably 20 or 20 to 30 of those mm -hmm. over over my career. Uh, well, and something about that, we, we get asked a lot, and, and I, I get where they come from, but, but we investigate our own officer shootings. Um, yes, we, we we've do. had in the past, you know, Texas Rangers come in, different people that have been there to look over stuff, um, but there's, there's always that, well, you guys investigate yourself, nobody ever's in trouble. You know, what, what goes on just as well, far as the part can, that, that you can say this is I, a, a justified I under, I deal? I understand people's thoughts on sure. whether we should or should not investigate our own. However, um, you have to look at the fact of the expertise that gets brought into one of those investigations. Um, as far as this area, we are the larger of the police departments. And at the time, we had Potter and Randall right. uh, investigators in the unit. So you, you really can't fall back on saying, okay, I'm going to do the sheriff's to do this. So the nearest large department is either going to be like Lubbock or maybe Wichita Falls, you're going to have to expand out. That's taking resources away from them. Um, the Texas Rangers, a great organization, a lot of experience. However, they're spread out over a large area. They don't have, they're not a, 
you know, with their CSI is not possibly localized, they bring those out of right. different jurisdictions. So, um, and, and, and truthfully speaking, we investigate more of those than they were doing. Um, but I, I never really objected to having somebody look over my shoulders, sure. whether it was the FBI that might have looked into a civil rights deal or the Texas Rangers who looked into something. Uh, you know, if, they, if somebody wanted it done, by all means. But we weren't uh, the final say. No, know. no. Um, we would put the case together. We had to present those cases to a grand jury uh, and to the DA. The, the DA would have first say as to whether there was a criminal offense that was presented or was that had occurred mm -hmm. during that. And then you presented it to 12 members of the community that was said on that grand jury. And that meant a full presentation, whether it was a PowerPoint, whether it was bringing evidence, if they wanted to talk to witnesses or investigators, we were, we were on the stand. Mm -hmm. And I, I sat through each and every one of those. Uh, usually the chief of police was there because there were, if there was questions about departmental policy, he would answer that. Um, so then that, that, was their, that was your secondary review. And then in-house, we had like a shooting review board, and then you had rules and regulations. And it was discussed whether, not so much whether they did a criminal violation in those deals, but whether they followed departmental policy. Like, uh, were they carrying the right ammunition? Was it the stuff that we issued to them? Were they carrying the right weapons? Uh, were they, were the weapon, did the weapon they use was it the one they were supposed to be carrying? That wasn't a figure in my investigation. I was just concerned whether you were legal in which you were doing or defending yourself. Mm -hmm. But there was stuff that the department would look at and then you could get in, have disciplinary action taken against you for violating departmental rules. Um, uh, you know, there was rules about uh, whether you could shoot at moving vehicles. Uh, there, you know, it was limited, was sure. to get out of the way. We investigated a lot of shootings on cars, but we always reviewed those to see if we needed to modify rules and regulations sure. to change things. Um, so I, I don't think people knew, um, you know, uh, whoever the investigator that was up that time, he was the one that got that officer involved shooting. But there was lots of layers involved in it, both from the DA's office wanted to be kept up to date to the chiefs that wanted to keep kept up to date. Uh, I can tell you that the Polk Street shooting, where all the shots that were fired, was was just very, very stressful. Mm -hmm. I was in contact with either somebody within the administration of the police, de police department or the DA's office for months while we were getting, getting all the evidence and all the people talked to mm -hmm. and all the other facts that came out that they wanted us to do something additional on, rumors, uh, everything that we had to track down. Mm -hmm. Um, allegations of wrongdoing that we had to clear uh, uh, whether the officer was right or wrong that had nothing to do with the shooting. Um, so it, it became very stressful. I, I will tell you from my point of view that every single one of them was stressful. Even if I was convinced that the officer was totally right sure. uh, and was very justified in the action he took, there was always that chance that a grand jury or somebody else would see that differently. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I am thankful that during my career that no one was indicted, no officer was indicted. And I'm thankful during my career I was never in an officer involved shooting right. mm -hmm. and, and experienced that from that point of view. Sure. So, uh, 
I think most people just need to understand that we did have the expertise uh, to get on the special crimes. You couldn't just be a brand new detective, a brand new sergeant, brand new detective. You had to have some experience. And I mean, the community um, trusts us to investigate the other homicides in our community and other shootings in our community. And while this is investigating one of our own, we still have to do that. I mean, if we don't do that right, then we're not going to be able to maintain the trust of doing the others right. And and I think as a norm, the community does trust us in investigating these shootings. Mm -hmm. I I think all it would do if, if we took a lackadaisical approach, it took a lazy investigation. Mm and didn't do it the community would know that and they wouldn't trust us and and you would you would open that that door to uh being reviewed on different various levels uh you know i think that we have been above board at least when i was in there i would i would i would give news conferences give out as much information as i could i would uh, and i know that's kind of changed i would identify the officer because i knew it was going to come out sooner or later uh, I would give some details of the, the incident so that they understood that. And I also would talk to the family members. Uh, and a lot of those were not happy, of course. You know, their family member was uh, either shot, wounded, or was deceased. Mm-hmm. But if, if I wanted to do that job, I better have enough guts to sit down and say, Carla, this is what happened. This right. is why your loved one was shot. Or this is why the officer had to do what he did. And uh, there's a couple times I showed videos, and the family would say, "That's not my, that's not my son, or that's not my mm-hmm. grandson." Yes, it is. You don't want it to be, but it is. And this is the facts of what took place. I, I think sometimes we 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 didn't. It, maybe sometimes it would have been nice to show the community the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But to be fair to the family and to be fair to the officers, you just couldn't do that. Um, but, you know, I, I will tell these people, most the officers were very, very forthcoming, uh, did, not hold on, did not hold back any information, as you see on TV, where they say, no, I'm not going to talk to anybody. That wasn't the case. They would speak to us. They would tell us what took place. They wanted it to be known. They cooperated. They did not do, do anything, at least during my tenure, that would make me suspicious as to anything. They were, they were saying that, you know, hey, we will tell you what I will tell you what went on, from my point of view and what I did and why I did it. Well, and go ahead, Jeff. I say, I, you know, I, in our department, when you you mentioned Lieutenant Troop, everybody knows who you are. You're 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 pretty much a legend when it comes to <laughs> police work in our department. Uh, and you can ask just about anybody that's ever worked under here, and I've heard it, and I've I've done it. Um, but when you start talking about like the public people knew who you were you were out you you were doing your own interviews you were doing things that a lot of supervisors and and most of the departments don't do you know i i came up to a time that it was expected both as a sergeant and a lieutenant you did your own news releases you did your own interviews um eddie smith did did his interviews and i really wish sometimes i could do some of what Eddie, if you're listening to us, forgive me here. But <laughs> I used to think sometimes there were something they called the Eddieisms, and Eddie would say some words and he would butcher them. And I always wished I could do that sometimes. Yeah. It was like that old homespun deal, and I was like, going, God, I maybe I can do an Eddieism. But I, I thought, you know, you know, if, if we did something good, we got to do a news conference. I, and if the news media wanted to ask me a question, 
you know, the worst I could say is, I can't tell you. Right. You know, if they'd right. always tell me how many times they've been shot, not going to tell you because mm -hmm. I want the bad guy to tell me how many times they've been stabbed. Not going to tell you, you know. Sure. Now, it's kind of hard to get around. Well, if they've been shot once, you know, they were shot, mm -hmm. you know. But I, I enjoyed talking with the public. I enjoyed talking with the, the news media. Uh, some days I didn't. Uh, sometimes they'd ask a question like, oh, ooh, how'd you know that? <laughs> uh, I remember doing a, a interview at a parking lot of Walmart, I or Canyon in Georgia, an officer-involved shooting, and I was talking to the media, and all of a sudden some citizen comes up and right in the middle of the interview goes, can I ask you a question? And I'm sure. going, well, the news media is asking, go ahead, what's yeah, your question? Sure. And I, I said, and it was like, the news media's looking at me like, I, I go, hey. Right, so I answered the question. I right. go looking around. Anybody else? <laughs> you know, like, well, you know, that's that's one of the things that we run into is um, sometimes officers aren't sure, and they're like, "Well, can the media be there?" I'm like, "Well, the public can be there." So same yes. thing, you know. If if you're talking to the media and the public wants, I mean, that's kind of they all have the same rights. Yeah, we my, had that the other and, day. And, and nowadays everybody's got a phone and their Facebook well, Live, so their own their own reporter right now. Absolutely. So, yeah, so I mean, you you look at it, and you go, if you don't want the you don't want the news media up there. Move your stuff back. Right. Make everybody back, but don't tell the news media they can't be there. But you're letting everybody else come right. up there. You're just uh, you're sure. giving yourself a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, hell, I don't care. You know the news media is going to tell the public why should make sure if I tell the public maybe maybe I maybe I won't be cut down to ten seconds right. out of a two minute right. interview. Right. You know, so exactly uh, that's kind know. of why we like to do um, our own releases, yep. and then the news can and put our own stuff out there and the news can do whatever they want and so can a citizen you know whoever but if we if it comes from us initially then we get to put in there what needs to be told as well yeah i did all my own news releases probably i butchered the english language or the <laughs> uh, commas and uh, periods brett would brett barbie would always yep. i think be correcting mine as soon as i gave it to him but uh but so does the uh, people up in training and personnel when i give them a background investigation I think I do a good job. Uh, my my sentence structure probably still needs work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am not that great at that either, but um, I have Corporal Jeb Hilton to check mine. So <laughs> I, I got that from Ben Bar Brent Barbie. So yeah. and I uh, I didn't I, get to work when with I him. first got in uh, here. He would he would make me put every release I wrote on his desk, and he would get out a red pen and grade it. And I'd get it back, and it would be completely changed for the better. I, and you know, for a while, his nickname from some of his officers was the Spelling Bee. Oh yeah. You know, going along because Brent would would do that. I I was like, okay, I did run-on sentences. You name it. I I was never anybody was going to critique you on your sentence structure. Mm -hmm. you know? It made sense. It made sense. Yeah, I, I the first. He did that, and I thought, man, I don't know why he's doing this, and, and got it right to where I was doing a really good job. And then one time I put something out and didn't put a whole lot of effort into it, and I got an email from a lady, and I'll never forget it. She said, I, I can't even finish reading this. It was so bad. And, and I thought, goodness, you know. Uh, there's people out there yeah. that, that yes, so uh, I'm, spelling I'm glad and that they spelling and sentence structure is very, very important. And, and I, know what, I know it is. <laughs> right. Uh, and sorry, sorry to my old teachers. I just didn't pay as good of attention in grade school, junior high, and high school as I should have. I apologize. <laughs> That's funny. 
Oh my gosh. So um, it, you said you would talk about it. Is there any other cases that you can think of that you... You know, I was, when I was thinking back about when I first went in special crimes, of course, everybody had heard about uh, the, the, uh, the deal where the man was buried in the grain, grain elevator oh, here yeah. in time. And, and it was like I had been chose to go into special crimes. I just wasn't in there yet. She told me like in December that I was going to get in there, and I didn't get in until March because there were some things transferring around. And I, uh, the investigator at the time, Sergeant Mark Brown, comes up to me and goes, you need to know about this case before you get in here. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I haven't heard a word about this, but it was, this was, this was an interesting case as far as how many people were involved on both sides and when the, the man got killed. And it was like, I was always fascinated by the fact that, man, they took a, they just took a world of time to make sure they hid him. They put him in. They put him in this grain elevator, and they they put like 50 bags of quick creep over him. Oh yeah, I and, remember. And hearing they about that. you could not see. They did it so well, you didn't know that there was that the grain elevator should have went down further and a slant into the ground mm -hmm. where the, it kind of augers the stuff out or augers it up in. But you know, and, and then when you went around it, all the people that were involved in that investigation, from the fact of luring him to an apartment to kidnapping him from the apartment, taking him to another county, torturing him pretty much. Uh, and then how he, I, I, I don't understand the part where you load up a dead guy in a vehicle and you take him all over the panhandle while you're trying to find a place to either dump him, uh, whether it be Lake Meredith or where they're going, they were like, you've killed this guy and now you're trying to figure out a place to dump him but you're too cheap to find buy uh, anything that would that would do something. I mean, he traveled all over the panhandle wow. until they decided to bury him in the grain elevator. And it was a fascinating investigation from, I think, narcotics was involved in it mm -hmm. to our unit was involved in it. I think at the end, seven or eight, nine people were filed on that were involved in various parts of this homicide. Uh, you know, so it just... Because it was like, drug related that caused yeah, it them was, to want and to kill it. It was, and it was just it was two factions against each other, mm -hmm. and I don't know if their original goal was to actually kill him, or whether it was to get him to quit selling drugs, but in the end, in the end, it you know it did, lost it did call, yeah, he did lose his life. Uh, the one that I'd like kind of kind of touch on. That I, I well, it was a whodunit case, and I won't go into a whole lot of details. But this happened in North Amarillo, uh, somewhere like around 3,000 block. Of, like, I'm going to say like North Orange, but I'm not going to. I'm not sure that's the right street. But uh, it was like a Saturday morning. We got called, and uh, a man was an older man. An elderly man was found uh, stabbed in his uh, inside his house in one of the bedrooms. Uh, the bedroom was in disarray. You knew somebody had searched all through there. And um, come to find out, the man had had a burglary in his house weeks before. And it appeared that it was probably a burglary again and that the man had stumbled across the, 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 the person committing the burglary. Um, you know, we had a wealth of evidence, a wealth of CSI evidence in the house. However, we... It, you know, trying to sort through all that evidence and decide which is relevant, which was, which was maybe the bad guy, which was maybe 
the victim, which mm -hmm. was maybe family members, was going to take time, both from the DNA point of view and possibly from fingerprint point of view, you know, uh, having fingerprints to compare. So um, as we went on, we were, we developed a thought about the crime from early on that this man had a routine that on certain, on certain days of the weekend, he went to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And he was handicapped enough that he, when he went to the grocery store, he parked in his backyard when he came back. Oh, to get stuff To, his to unload his groceries, because he couldn't walk very well. But at the same time, he'd unload his trash into the bed of his pickup and take it back to the alley, unload his pickup, and then park in the front. So if anybody was to know he was, to know he was gone from the house, they had to be, know that his see of his pickup was gone. So that was the only vehicle they had. So it had to be somebody that probably had visual either at the front of his house or the back of his house and knew his routine. Um, what was the deal? We had we had no suspects. We had not nobody. We did a neighborhood canvas, which was normal and um, trying to see if anybody knew anything, anybody was there or anything. And initial neighborhood canvas was, I'd say unsuccessful, it didn't give us any leads. The investigator that was assigned to it asked if he could uh, get some people and perform a second uh, neighborhood canvas about a week later. I, by all means, let's do yeah. it. So we all went out, plus uh, I think we had one of the like, pace units or something like that that helped us. We went door to door. We had a set of questions we were asking about who was there at your house at the time and was anybody here and stuff. And pretty much the information we got, and we were trying to hit the houses that we hadn't hit before, but nothing significant came back again. Well, the investigator goes, I want to try it again. So we lined out our neighborhood search, but with people that could see the front or the back. And on our third neighborhood canvas, and actually about four or five houses down on the same side of the street, we talked to a grandparent who said, and we hadn't talked to that person before, who said her grandson was there during that time, and he was originally from Lubbock, and he would occasionally visit Amarillo and would stay there. And after about how she would have visual of that gentleman's house in his vehicle within after we got that name within and we're talking three weeks after this where we haven't got a lead pretty much one um we're hitting the burglars and trying to find out but within like eight hours of getting that name of that young man who was visiting and lubbock we made his fingerprints inside the bedroom where the deceased was found oh, on wow some of the stuff that had been moved around. Well, that didn't put us, say, it committed the homicide, but it did put us in the fact that we felt we had enough to, he had no business, had no reason to be in that house. We got a, a warrant for homicide. Uh, our SWAT team was kind enough to go down to uh, Lubbock with our investigator and one of our CSI guys because we were looking, we had a specific shoe print. We were looking for a specific shoe. I think if the guys would have remembered, we gave that shoe print to the schools, especially Paladero, some of the Northside schools, because it was a very specific shoe that we were looking for that shoe and never could come across it. Well, we went down to Lubbock with our SWAT team, 
Lubbock PD and their SWAT team were kind enough to help us. We located the suspect's house. He was living, I think he was with his uncle, and um, were able to take him into custody on our warrant and we were able to find a pair of knockoff tennis shoes that matched the, the shoe that we were looking for. And when we had those shoe prints fingerprinted, or <laughs> you know, for lack of a better terminology, mm -hmm. perfect match to the shoe prints we found in, I think, the kitchen. And we prosecuted that young man. He was, and I, I know he got convicted of the murder, but it was nothing so pleasing as to tell his family and they were like going, we didn't think you had anything. We didn't until now. And I think we did a news conference, the family, mm -hmm. that family came up there because I think myself and most of the investigators in CSI, hell, we hadn't slept in about two weeks, you know, because we were going yeah. nonstop trying to, trying to, we were going because there was coins that were stolen. And I, I will tell you, one. I will tell you that, that those coins, state coins aren't worth they're worth 25 cents mm -hmm. or less. Um, most coin collectors won't take them, you know, as far as because we thought they're stolen. Maybe somebody will sell them. Sure. Uh, they're not worth anything. Even the colored ones, they're not. Uh, so They were just of but, value to but him? We, we contacted every coin shop in Amarillo, seeing mm -hmm. if they were traded. They were, the kids used them just oh. for everyday stuff. He just spent them just like, oh, wow. like anybody else does. So. But it was it was satisfying, you know. So a lot of the things that we did was was I, I might know who you who did this, but when I got it over here, mm -hmm. either I could get you to tell me you did it, or I could prove you did it. Right. That was that was the satisfying. I don't care if you told me. Actually, sometimes I'd prefer you not to tell me, mm -hmm. just because that way I don't have to listen to excuses and try to do something. But you know, it, it was interesting to talk to murders. Uh, talk to uh, people, find out why did you do something. A lot of it wasn't intentionally. It wasn't something they planned to do. Uh, the ones that I guess would bother you the worst were the infant signs, mm -hmm. the children deaths, the, those children murders. I still see those. I still see those victims. Uh, mm -hmm. I close my eyes. Uh, that would something I would never tell people that I would say that they need to. You know, going out, we had to go out on all infant deaths. Uh, there's nothing more just destroying to your soul than talking to a family member who just lost their baby mm -hmm. and you're having to ask them questions to make sure that it isn't a criminal act and sure. I'm sure I invaded a whole lot of people's privacy by doing that but that was my job yeah. and uh, but a lot of rewarding stuff I, if I had it to do over I'd do it I'd, and I'd probably try to stay a little bit longer this time <laughs> I remember the the one you were talking about on Orange. That, that was one too. of my very first homicides I went to on evening shift, and mm -hmm. it was. Um, I remember getting there and just putting, trying to put everything together while while standing there, and just like you said, there was nothing. And yeah, well, you know, you you want to call yourself a little bit of a profiler, <clears throat> and I and I never really went I, other than just some basic profiling schools, never any lengthy ones or anything. But you know, you start reading the crime scene, and you're going, "Okay, the opportunity was here." But in this particular case, it was his routine that was that he didn't he didn't move around a lot. But if his pickup was not in his driveway, he wasn't home. And in both times when somebody broke into his house, 
the pickup was out of the driveway. The second time, the person just didn't know the routine that when he came back from going to grocery shopping, I think at the United over there on River Road, mm -hmm. he would come back and he'd pull in his backyard because he just was, he was, his mobility wasn't good. He could take his stuff in the house. And in this particular case, he didn't get all of his groceries in the house. So some of them were still in the truck. Mm -hmm. Because I'm, po I'm convinced, I'm positive, he heard the bad guy in the house and he went and looked. Um, he, uh, I'm convinced that the, imp the weapon that was used to do was his own, that it was old, his own pocket knife mm -hmm. uh, that was taken away from him and, yeah. uh, and stuff. So uh, he heard him. He went to check on who was in his house, who was you know, violating his property. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that when he came and got to that doorway that the, the, the suspect goes, I'm trapped and I've got to go through him to get out. So he did. And unfortunately, when he did that, the man lost his life. Yeah, that's terrible. And it's it's one of those, it's like the Labor Day shoot and, and a few other that, others that we've had where, you know, you, the, you, your team and the other teams that have done that just, you know, worked so hard. And just because those families and those victims, they yeah. deserve. I talked I I talk to the investigators working the ones that did all the drive-by mm -hmm. shootings and stuff. You know, I'm going... Somebody's going to talk. Somebody's going to say something because it's just going to be a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. Because the more you do, the more somebody's going to know who you are. Okay. Or somebody, you're going to talk to somebody and somebody's going to go, mm, you know. And especially when it progresses to you're shooting at random cars to all of a sudden you shoot and you kill somebody. Yeah, and that, especially the know, lady. That, that is, it's not impossible to solve. It's, it's, it's just... You have to keep on it. You have to keep talking to people. You have to keep following up. Regardless of how minor the, the, the lead is, you have to follow up because that little minor lead, whether it's generated by a field officer, whether it's generated by a phone call, mm -hmm. if you ignore it, you're doing it at your own Absolutely. risk. Uh, you need to sit there. If somebody calls you, and even if you know it's not true, listen to them, talk to them, jot it down, and make sure it you make sure you could say no nah, that didn't happen or wow maybe I ought to just make a go out and talk to somebody and see if there's any validity to this people hear the same things we do we hear all these rumors they hear them. they think we don't so they want to pass it on detective or investigator is a fool by not listening to those folks because sooner or later they're gonna tell you that they're gonna tell you something they're gonna get it right and there's always that person out there. Uh, there was one lady that called me a lot. She lived on the north side. And I can almost guarantee you, 70 to 80% of the things she told me on those phone calls was accurate to the day is old. And those little I'll, ladies never, I'll never give it her up. And I, I know other people have talked to her, but she was right. And she didn't see them, but somebody told her every time. She had her fingers on that community. Oh, and yeah do it and if you don't talk to those folks i'll just say you're a fool yeah and i we talk about it a lot about in our job how much we speak with everybody i mean the public and, and media whatever it is but that's one thing i was was really intent on getting my rookies to learn when we were training was was get out and talk to people in the neighborhood you're working because you know there's there's going to be people that like you people that don't like it there's going to be people that 
like you when nobody else is looking. Uh, but if somebody else is looking, they're not going to say a word to you. And, and you can catch those people and talk and talk and talk, and you will get any information you want yeah, just I, from I being mean, everybody's, go, everybody's going to make somebody mad. Yeah. I, you know, whether at some point you liked talking to me, the, the next time I may go somewhere and that person just for whatever reason, me and him just don't hit it off right. right. Um, but if you, if I shut up and didn't talk, then... I, I had to keep on talking. Right. Whether you didn't like me or not, I had to ask those questions. And maybe I could change your mind. Maybe sure. not. Uh, but you're right. If you don't talk, you're not going to get anything. And if you get out, you talk to somebody, and you kind of joke with them, and you, and you treat them. And I want to sit there and say treat them like you would just anybody and not throw the police jargon at them, sure. not do anything, joke a little bit. Uh, be respectful. You know, yeah, yeah. Be, be respectful and, you know, whether you call them sir, ma'am, whatever, right. you know, and do what you're supposed to be doing and have that conversation, but don't make it an interrogation sure. for the most part. You'll, you know, we know when we're supposed to interrogate somebody or when that's going to be a hard interview. If I'm talking to you as a victim, that shouldn't be an interrogation. Right. This should be a conversation of me to get sure. as much information as I can from you. I might drive you crazy because I'm going to ask you a whole lot of questions, right. but it's just get the information I need to try to solve your crime. Absolutely. Gosh, this has been so much fun. We told you 30 minutes, but it was I a know, little longer. I, I think we've been about an hour. Almost, yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we could keep going. Yeah, I, we could talk I, to I'm you I'm all sure day. we could. I, I could go over <laughs> all kinds of homicides, kid stuff, you name it, but it, it's it's been a good career. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, when I was a, when I was an active police officer, I enjoyed coming to work every day. Mm -hmm. I there wasn't very often that I ever thought about not wanting to be here. I I gave a lot of time overtime that I didn't turn in. Uh, I I enjoyed it. I missed it when I retired, and I enjoy coming back. I enjoy seeing the officers that I worked with. I enjoy having those conversations. I, I, every once in a while, somebody will still talk to me and say they recognize me. Not as much as they used to, uh, but every once in a while, it's kind of nice to have those conversations also yeah. and, and uh, actually say, yeah, hey, you know, and I, and I like the fact that what you were saying, uh, you guys let me be part of that family. Let, sure. me, uh, let me, you know, and hopefully that respect for me is two, both ways. I respect you guys. I respect for sure. those people that worked for me, and I thought a lot of everybody that I worked with well, there's a few that I, I'm sure I had my issues with, but <laughs> for the most part, I enjoyed serving with these guys. Actually, I enjoyed going on calls with people, even as a lieutenant, when I could, making backups and things. So, uh, that was it's been a satisfying career. Uh, now I'm trying to get people hiring, and yeah. Uh, that's interesting in and of itself. Uh, we might have to do uh, another podcast with you we, talking about some yeah, of those. Some of the, some of the, uh, <laughs> I just say that some people think you need to think about what what you might be getting into, and mm -hmm. this is not a job for everybody. Right. And uh, this this takes a toll on you, your family, everything, and even getting into it. It's not easy to get into this business. We're not we're not the easiest to get into. But then, it, I think the public would not want us to be easy and just take anybody. Um, mm. we're, we're, we're still pretty picky as to what, you, what we'll take. I think um, with the way social media portrays a lot of, you know, all they show is the bad stuff. And so people think 
that anyone can be a police officer. There's no rules or anything like that. But the truth, if they if they took the time to look at the actual numbers of how many police contacts are done daily, annually, and then how many of those actually end up being a bad contact, um, the reality is that there are way more good police officers than bad. And that's because of people like you doing background investigations. And you know, I, I think most people will think being a police officer, you get to carry a gun and you make arrests. And There's so much the, more to it. The arrest part is limited. Yeah. Uh, actually, what Jeb was saying, as far as talking to people, is the majority of your job. Talking to victims, talking to people that are reporting crimes, talking to uh, suspects, talking to people that are in mental crisis, mm -hmm. talking to people that need help that's got nothing to do with police work. It's a large part of this job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would say since I've been doing background investigations, out of all the people that put in for it, probably 30% or less are all that get hired. Mm -hmm. And it's probably even less than that um, for a variety of reasons. It, this, we'll, we'll take an application from anybody. Uh, there's certain things you can't have that you can't be, but there's so much more to the background than just uh, turn in an application, say, to go to work for, uh, I say, a Tootin' Totem or a department mm -hmm. store. We, we expect a whole lot more for you to tell us about yourself, and then we're going to confirm that, and we're going to ask a lot of questions about you. Yeah. And this job... We have a lot of power yeah, as police officers, yeah, and, and that uh, has to be taken seriously. Yeah. Uh, so you can actually get accepted and still not make it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's the other part of this. You know, there's various, there's like six, seven steps in our process, and then it, invariably it seems like in that first week of academy we lose two or three because mm -hmm. all of a sudden this is wow, this is what really it is. <laughs> yeah. uh, this isn't what I thought. Yeah. And I'm going, you don't know, you haven't seen anything yet right. in the first week. Yeah, that's, that's so, a good thing you figured it out in the first yeah. week. It always yeah. blows our mind when we, we lose one or two in that first week of the academy. And we mm. think, what did you think you were getting into? <laughs> right. I, yeah, so I, I, I you know, I'll, I'll probably do this for a, a little bit longer, but I'm not getting any younger. So <laughs> Got uh, a lot of diving left. Yeah, um, I think since I've been in there, I've did about 70 or 80. So, uh, myself and another retired lieutenant, Barry Carden, uh, he, he's, he's, we got hired together. So, uh, it, it is interesting. Uh, you get to use all of the, your interview skills, mm -hmm. your body language skills, your observation, you know, and stuff that, all of that goes into all this, talking to people on the phone. They pay me more sometimes than I'm worth talking about. <laughs> As you can see, I talk more than I'm worth so. We do. That is not true, but you know, I you you were you were you at the PD when I started, same as Jeb, and I worked for you in several different of the different areas. You were a dispatcher when yeah, you first started. Yeah, and then you were on my interview board for the officer to become an officer, and and I don't know how to call you anything but Lieutenant Troop. So, hey, you Lieutenant, know, I I tried to tell people. I do have a first name. I know, but I can't um, do that. I know it. I, I've had a lot of people. I say, hey, my name's Gary. Um, and they'll say, nope. Yes. Uh, it was either sergeant <laughs> or lieutenant. Yeah. And, and I will say, as a final note, uh, along that line, my my wife, my ex-wife now, uh, for like the first year or so, called me by my last name because she said, no one calls you by your yeah. first name. Everybody calls you troop or sergeant. Yeah. And I go, 
but we have a relationship. Yeah. You, you can call me Gary. Yeah. Yeah. That it's sounds tough. about right. That's funny. Well, yeah. thank so you again. People still call me Lieutenant. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know how for not the, to. For the can, longest can time, I tried to sit there and say, my Lieutenant retired. I'm going, you know what? Thank you. It's, it's a <laughs> tight name, title of honor. I appreciated being it. it was somebody else's turn, but okay, I can be that. I can, I can, I can be that. And if if somebody needs advice, if I can help, I'll be happy to. And that is that is why for me. I mean, I respect you so much and all the valuable. I mean, we I've set up in your office since you've been back, and you've had some very valuable conversations to me. So I appreciate well, it. And, and we, I'm glad I only cussed two or three times. Or so <laughs> if I offended anybody by saying a couple of words, sorry, we're, we're I'm, I'm ten times worse than pro, in person. We we will ask for forgiveness later. Is what we decided. Uh, yeah, we're we, talking to cops, and sometimes, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm we worse, try not I'm to. I'm worse in person, sure. but I, I'm, <laughs> I, every once in a while, a few words will slip in. Yeah. But we, we appreciate everything you've done for the department and everything you've done for the city. Thanks Thank for, for coming yes. on today. We I, do appreciate you. Anytime, guys. Thank you. Thank you.